are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic papal tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. While I was growing up, like when I was a teenager and a young adult, I didn't fully appreciate the fact that I was living in Seattle or, or like the Seattle area during the grunge movement. I knew I was like, there was this part of my mind that kind of went, okay, yeah, this is the happening place to be right now, I guess. But I think I was just too young to understand what Seattle was and what it was doing collectively, like culturally at the time. Grunge was a counterculture movement. I mean, obviously it was a musical genre first, kind of combining punk and metal, but it was also this cultural statement. It was a pushback against the conspicuous consumption of the 80s and the ethos that conspicuous consumption presupposed. Uh, like the idea that wealth and power were the only things that mattered, that society consisted of consumers and the consumed, and that the way you participated in American life was to buy things and accumulate wealth. And grunge was this backlash against those ideals. You know, the music, which was the heart of the subculture, had this deteriorated, careless, kind of cast-off quality that rejected the clean, techy synth-pop sounds of New Wave and the cynical, overproduced, highly commercialized approach to music embodied by, like, the boy bands of the time. Grunge was DIY. These bands were born in garages and got their chops by playing shitty parties that would get busted by the cops because everyone was smoking weed. And the lyrics and even the feel of the music itself was raw and honest. It told the truth about what it felt like to exist within that terrible 80s Reaganomics nightmare of unrestrained capitalism and like full throttle narcissism. It sucked. And grunge told the truth about how much it sucked. And Seattle is at the heart of that cultural reflection, that conscious rejection of ideals that weren't working out for anybody except the already rich. That's maybe the kind of insight you can't really have into your early life and your hometown until you've grown up a little, though. What I did know was that the music scene was fucking awesome. There was always some show to check out somewhere. Like, the city was just bursting with weird, belligerent, you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do creative energy. That was a good cultural stew for a writer to grow up in. Like, one of my favorite memories from living in Seattle when I was young. I was like, 20? 21? My roommate Jake and I were actually moving into the place we'd rented together, like, hauling boxes from our cars into this basement apartment. And our friend Devin came tearing up in her van. She drove this shitty, awful, white, windowless van with, like, a three-on-the-tree transmission. It was the worst. It was a total child molester van. But she pulled up and she was all frantic and she was like, You guys, I know you're right in the middle of moving in, but Crash Test Dummies just randomly showed up at the Ballard Firehouse and they're playing. Come on, we gotta go check this out. 
The Ballard Firehouse was a bar and they'd have live music there all the time. It was like one of the coolest live music venues, but it was small. Like it was not a big venue. It was really tiny, but this wasn't a scheduled show. Like crash test dummies were just in town doing whatever, probably meeting with executives at Sub Pop or something. And they just decided to randomly play an impromptu set at the firehouse. So Jake and I piled into Devin's van and she drove us down there and we caught like the last half of their unscheduled, unplanned set. It was the afternoon, it was like maybe one o'clock, I don't know. And there were like 30 people in the entire venue, it was a super small crowd. But yeah, we just walked in and there was this awesome genre-busting, do-whatever, weirdo pack of musicians playing whatever the hell they felt like, because it was Seattle. And it was 2001. The band was drunk, like so drunk. And probably stoned. And maybe afflicted by some other interesting substances. <laughs> because it was Seattle and it was 2001. But damn, what a great show. I mean, how often does your friend roll up in their beater van and haul you off to an unplanned appearance by the Crash Test Dummies? Only in Seattle, baby. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. You can probably hear a bunch of city noise in the background while I'm recording. That's because I'm actually in Seattle right now, in the vibrant Capitol Hill neighborhood. Vibrant is just like real estate lingo for, you will hear people yelling at all hours of the day and night. I am famously not a city person. I would be very content to live on a small, isolated island without anyone near me for the rest of my life. And I almost got away with doing exactly that, but poor Paul was going nuts from the isolation, which is how we ended up in Victoria. And I do like Victoria a lot, mainly because we managed to find an apartment in a really quiet neighborhood that's still central, so we get to enjoy all the good parts of city life without putting up with too many of the bad parts. We're very fortunate in that regard. But despite the fact that I'm not a city person, I'm really loving being back in Seattle right now. Like, a lot. A lot, a lot. People live today where they will. Neither terrain nor distance a deterrent to where the men of the city build their homes. All roads lead, as they have for centuries, to the great centers of commerce and communication, as the Continental Highway now leads us to the city of tomorrow. I've been here for a week, and it's almost time for me to head back up to Victoria. Paul and I came down several days ago to see our friend Jackie's live show down in Tacoma. She's a comedian and a podcaster, and her podcast, uh, Page 7, is doing a live tour right now, so of course we couldn't miss her appearance in the Northwest. And it was great to see her, as always. Jackie's just, like, full of light and wonderfulness, and I adore her and her partners on Page 7, though I don't know them very well. Anyway, Paul and I spent the whole day after the show just hanging out together and exploring the city. And it was amazing. Paul and I both grew up in the Seattle area, so naturally we hung out down in the city all the time when we were young, and then we lived in the city in the Interbay neighborhood early in our relationship and like through the first few years of our marriage, and Seattle was fine all that time. You know, it was a pretty generic city with a downtown core that had a few skyscrapers where businesses were headquartered and neighborhoods that were more residential and whatever, typical American city. It has completely changed in the almost 10 years since Paul and I moved away. It has changed so much that it feels like a totally different place, or almost. It, it's not It's not totally different. Like, it still feels like its old self, but like a self that is embracing the reality of the here and now and is 
projecting itself into the future with a strong presence, this clear sense of who it is as a place. Seattle is a city that knows where it's been and sees very clearly where it's going, and it's choosing how it moves into the future. And the more time I spend here, the more I can see that. And I'm finding this new Seattle, this metamorphosing city, really inspiring and, like, creatively stimulating. Plazas of urban living rise over freeways. Vehicles electronically paced travel routes remarkably safe, swift, and efficient. The thing that strikes me so much about all the development that's been going on here is how boldly and unapologetically Seattle prioritizes aesthetics now. Really, like a dozen or more large skyscrapers have gone up since I lived here, and they're beautiful. I never thought I'd say that about buildings, especially not like modern skyscrapers, but truly looking at the Seattle skyline now and looking at these buildings from ground level as you move through the city is almost an artistic experience. I don't know who all these architects are who've designed these new towers, but it's really incredible how the buildings themselves harmonize with one another visually and with the older structures that still remain in and around the downtown core. As you walk or ride an Uber through the streets, you get these incredible tableaus like everywhere you look. The colors and lines of one building complementing those features in another. And then there are the shapes these buildings are taking. These aren't just big rectangles like skyscrapers were throughout most of the 20th century. There are subtle curves, intersecting lines, negative space, large forms balanced in such a way that they give a sense of weightlessness or groundedness or upward motion. Paul and I went down to the waterfront, to the piers, and when we turned back to look at the skyline above us, we noticed how the varied heights of the buildings created this waveform, this kind of organic flowing line that moved from north to south along the entire city. And from that perspective, the buildings formed optical illusions with one another, and the shapes and the materials merged with one another and created these playful impossibilities. It was like the city became a visual toy we could play with and turn into almost anything we wanted it to be, depending on where we stood and where we looked at it. This miniature dream world is the brainchild of the Glass Edge Development Committee, convened to stimulate new ideas and creative interest in architecture. I'm here for a few more days, though Paul had to head back to Victoria. Like I said, we came down for Jackie's show, but I'm also meeting my girlfriends on Wednesday and Thursday for a couple more shows. And then I'm heading back home to my quiet little apartment in my tree-filled city. I'll be leaving behind all the steel and cement and glass of the Seattle that is now, but kind of regretfully. I find the new Seattle so fascinating. I like what it's saying and what it's doing. It's the most 21st century I've ever been in, I have to say. It's all new era here for sure, like the visual choices these architects are making, the message they're sending, the future they're choosing for this place that has always chosen its own way of doing things. And all that visual harmony and the very deliberate beauty of the new skyline, it's as if this city is saying, since we must build upward and condense more and more people into this small plot of land, at least we're going to demand that our cities be more than merely functional now. They must provide us with everything we need in order to feel happy and fulfilled, including beauty and a sense of place, a sense of home. Towering terminals serve sections of the city, make public transportation more convenient, provide ample space for private cars, and from a lower level, 
covered moving walks radiate to shopping areas that are now truly marketplaces of the world. It's funny to me that I lived in or near Seattle for so long, for most of my life, really, but it always felt back then like just the place I was living, not like a place I necessarily wanted to be. And now I've spent every night of this visit out on the balcony of this little condo in Capitol Hill, watching the new buildings burn orange with the sunset and watching Venus rise above the cranes, watching the tops of all these buildings light up as the night comes in, intense colors, lively colors, hot pink and ultraviolet, cobalt, emerald green, picking out the edges of the shapes that define a new world. Yeah, um, I have to apologize for being high. Uh, no you don't. Because <laughs> I forgot that we were recording today because we had originally planned to record the previous weekend. Mm-hmm. And then you got puke all over your carpet, which was not your fault. Oh, not just the carpet. Oh. <laughs> Everything. Reed is a dad. Yeah. So um, those of you out there who are parents, you know, you know. This is my friend Reed Failer. He's a writer, a podcaster, a comedian, a visual artist, a real 21st century renaissance man. Reed is one of the hosts of the popular experimental fiction podcast called The Story Must Be Told, which features weird literary short stories all presented in the context of a cult that worships fiction. Reed also enjoys ambushing unsuspecting audiences at comedy shows with his utterly bizarre fiction performances, which are such a delight to watch. And if you're in Ohio, I encourage you to be on the lookout for his appearances. I promise they're worth it, especially if you appreciate the humor of the weird and the profane. Reed was kind enough to talk to me recently about the origins of his own weirdness, as well as the novel he recently finished and is currently shopping around. We got into some fun topics, as usual. Enjoy the conversation, my friends. So we rescheduled and I forgot and uh, I had a really rough writing day today. I could not get anywhere with what I'm working on. So um, when that happens, I just go, you know, smoke some weed and everything loosens up in my brain and works again. <laughs> and uh, and then I got an alert on my phone that was like, ah, I'm recording with Reed in an hour. So I was like, oh, shit. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so well, I didn't know you'd be so loosey goosey. Hi. I know. I smoked a jazz cigarette. <laughs> Um, we're also we're, we're recording this when Trump might get indicted, which is exciting. Like we'll see if it happens tonight. Yeah, maybe. it's kind of maybe a historic moment. It might be tomorrow. It could be Wednesday. Anything could happen, including uh, nothing at all. Like I've been very used to, sadly, accepting most of the time. <laughs> Just like oh, nothing. Still nothing. Still that that wasn't enough. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah, no, 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 nothing fucking matters, yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long couple of years. Couple. <laughs> I warned uh, I warned my Canadian neighbor. She she likes to keep up on Trump updates, so I'll text her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was outside the other day, and we crossed paths, and she said, oh, uh, I heard Trump might be getting indicted soon. And I'm like, yeah, I told her everything I know. And I said, you know, when it happens, seriously, Paul and I might have to go outside and just scream, like primal scream it all out, because we've been dealing with some stuff for many years now. <laughs> and she said, oh, we can set up a little space for you guys to square dance. And she goes, Americans all know how to square dance, right? And then she kind of starts laughing, and I look looked at her soberly and I said we do because we were required to learn it in elementary school yeah 
And she like kind of stopped and looked at me trying to, you know, determine whether it was kidding or not. And I said, and the reason why we had to learn it was racism. <laughs> she which is true. I'm laughing. It's not funny, but like, it's ridiculous, which is why I'm laughing. And she just kind of looked at me like, oh my God. <laughs> it was great. Where do I even start? Did you have to do the square dancing thing in school? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of racism. Yeah. That is why? That's why? That is literally why. Yeah. I was trying to explain this to Paul the other day because I told him about this encounter I had with our neighbor and we were laughing about it. And, uh-huh. and he doesn't remember having to learn square dancing. Oh, I clear- I hated it because I was a boy and I don't like dancing. Yeah. I grow up, I fucking love dancing. It's the best. Why wasn't- <laughs> It's great. Oh, I love it. But not square dancing. But not dancing. square dancing. We, we literally said the same thing. But not <laughs> square dancing because that's not really dancing. You don't really feel feel anything no you just well what you're supposed to feel is pride in being white yeah because um yeah i explained the horrible history of square dancing in public schools to paul and uh back in you know the 1950s the conservatives were stirring up a bunch of fear again about how white people are gonna be replaced by people who aren't white uh you know same old song and dance so (laughs) Um, so, the, so one of them, I don't know, some guy, some senator introduced some bill that went into like the presidential physical fitness program gotcha. that uh, part of that had to be learning American culture, which of course specifically meant white culture. And then they all sat around scratching their heads going like, wait, what is white culture though? And the only thing they could come up with that only white people do is square dancing. <laughs> so I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> <sighs> It's almost like it was a, a made-up concept yeah, and not an actual uh, uh, nation or, or heritage in any capacity. Nope. Just a bunch of dumb excuses to oppress people. I'm feeling positive. I'm feeling chipper. <laughs> nope. Oh, I'm not actually feeling very chipper. Uh, after my tot got the bug, I caught the bug, and now my wife has the bug. The bug being a stomach bug. Kind of a 24-hour thing real rapid takeoff, slow descent. But descent, almost immediate descent. Well, that's good. I mean, silver lining. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a a rough night and then whatever. But boy, (laughs) there's nothing like just watching. Like I I was on a call with my wife. Uh, She's a flight attendant. So we were were just talking over FaceTime like we do most nights with the kid. And I was reading a book to her and just in the middle of like turning the page, just just projectile all over the page oh uh sleepy time bunny bit the dust i had to throw that book away it was probably i think it was one of mine as a child it was like i told my wife and she's like it it lived a long happy life (laughs) and then i was just a a vomit catcher for the next uh 12 hours oh wow good times yeah good times it really wasn't too bad we watched moana twice there are worse things. I love Moana. Like comforting a really sick child. Oh yeah, same. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you're there doing it. You're a good dad. It's rare that there are good parents in this world. <laughs> so, God bless you. Well, thank you. I'll fuck it up some other way. <laughs> It'll happen. That's the job of parents to fuck up your life, right? <laughs> but the good parent anticipates the fuck ups and and immediately initiates unfuckery yes (laughs) you just have to be constantly unfucking right because i mean you're never gonna not make mistakes no 
at anything, but especially something that's really important and you care about, you know, because you're going to you're going to put everything into it. So like you're going to mm. make mistakes as a parent. This is listen to me, someone who is not a parent trying to dispense <laughs> parenting wisdom. <laughs> But you were a child. We all know. Exactly. We were yeah. all the, the sad uh, product of parents most of the time. So <laughs> most of the time. I, I'm not going to speak for everyone. Right. I mean, but. some people are raised by wolves. Remus and Romulus, for mm-hmm. example. Sucking at the wolf's teeth. <laughs> Have you ever drank any weird kind of milk? Like, what's the weirdest? <laughs> <laughs> that was a quick... Uh, I'm very happy with that immediate question. Um, No, I haven't drank a weird milk. Uh, I've drank in the the standard offshoots. I've I've had an oat milk. Right, yeah. I've had an almond. I've had a soy. Yeah. I've had a skim. I mean, that's that's just kind of standard milk, but uh, it's kind of a a watered-down version. I'm not that extravagant in my milks. Pretty, uh, Pretty vanilla in my milk, in my milk life. I think the weirdest milk I ever had was sheep's milk, and it was delicious. Really? Oh my god, it's like half and half. Oh. It's just like a really high fat content, so it's like creamy and sweet. Mm. How did you have it? Was it... Just a little sip. Just a little sip. Um, was it direct from the sheep? Did it chill first? Was it pasteurized? Yeah, it was pasteurized and chilled. It was, it was somebody who uh, makes sheep's milk cheese, and she was like, here, taste it. Like, the milk is really good, and I did, and I was mm-hmm. like, holy god, like, it is delicious, but very rich. You can't, like... Yeah, yeah. Can see why it makes such good cheese, but yeah, you couldn't just like eat that on your breakfast cereal, you'd die. Interesting. I imagine like straight from the udder cow milk is also like pretty good. Probably. I I, I don't think I've I, maybe when I was a weird kid living in the country, maybe straight from the udder. Quite possible. Seems like the kind of things people would do with their children in the eighties. <laughs> Here, suck on this germy cow teat. It'll be fine. <laughs> Doctors say it will help them be straight, morally, <laughs> physically, and genderly. <laughs> Always a prime concern in rural Idaho. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Ah, what was that like? It wasn't too bad. It's not a tiny town. It got progressively larger as I lived there. I think it's the second largest in Indiana, but it's still pretty small for the most part. It had it had some small community feelings, but part of that was too that we were my mom wasn't Catholic and my dad wasn't practicing, but they still put us in Catholic schools, and I ended up being raised pretty damn Catholic because of that. And then once I got out of it, my dad was getting in, and it was like, wait, wait, what? We didn't do this. I was the weird exception that was Catholic for some reason. What What was their justification for putting you in Catholic schools? Uh, they thought it was better schools. Oh, like the quality of education? Yeah, which maybe. I think my mom had a lot of fears that there were gangs in the public schools and they'd get me. And I don't, I honestly don't know what the schools were like at the time. But now looking back, I'm like, I don't know. Literally like an hour to two hours every single day was spent learning just Jesus is our Lord, the Trinity, the transubstantiation. Like, a lot of things that have zero use, less than math outside of school. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm like, was it was it better? I could have, I could have learned Spanish. Yeah, sounds like maybe mm-hmm. propaganda to be like, oh, it's a better education. Maybe propaganda. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't go to like religious school. Seems like it would be a drag. When I lived in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. speaking of your mom being afraid of gangs, 
when I lived in Salt Lake City, uh, I lived in a neighborhood called Sugar House, which was like notorious for being crime ridden and terrible. Like people from Salt Lake City call Sugar House Sugarhood. Like that's that's how they think of it. Right. And so when I told my friends, oh, yeah, I'm going to be living there for, you know, however many months and I'm going to be staying at this house in Sugar House. They were like, oh, my God sugarhood they're like that's dangerous that's a dangerous neighborhood you have to be really careful it's like okay jesus whatever i got there literally the only thing that was wrong with sugarhood was that people smoked weed on their porches <laughs> that was it it was a bunch of hippies I, absolutely <laughs> i was like great mm-hmm. these are my people <laughs> i walked through it every night completely safe waving at all the stoner neighbors it was wonderful mm-hmm. <laughs> after or after a fort wayne i lived in cincinnati for college and then moved to new york and moving to new york to people in Fort Wayne was just a mindfuck beyond mindfucks. Like, really? Tell, like, tell me stories from it. My parents... No, I'm not even saying that it was like a... It was a bit of a culture shock, but for people in Fort Wayne... Oh! Hearing that someone moved to New York, my parents constantly got like, is he is he safe? Like, what <laughs> is, he, is he scared? Is he being murdered currently? <laughs> It was it was the the height of every violent act, the inner city. It, it was every fear of of a small white town. Oh, I love that. That's so great. And it was like, I. How did you? How was living in New York? Did you like it? How did you feel about it? I loved it, and also it's a very trying and and different, and you have to accept a slightly different standard of life. Like I didn't have a, a dishwasher for. I did have one random year in my 11 years there that I had a dishwasher, and then it quickly got taken out from under us. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, like, no dishwasher, no washing machines, terrible heat, you're just always cold or too hot. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a different standard, but at the same time, it's like, you have neighbors, and you see people every day, and you don't have to have a car, and it's yeah. quite nice in a lot of ways. Yeah, it seems nice. I still have not been to New York, which is insane. I don't know. Really? Even as a visit? No, it's crazy. I need to go. Paul and I talk about this all the time. We're like, we need to just go because we keep, this is the way we travel. We wait until there's some excuse and then we plan a big trip around it. Like going to Jackie's wedding. We're like, oh, it's in Florida. We can road trip there and back. Mm-hmm. We can see all these other places we've always talked about seeing. So we spent like 20 days <laughs> driving to Jackie's <laughs> wedding and back. Right. Just enjoyed ourselves along the way. And we're like, we're never going to have an excuse to go to New York. We have to yeah. just like do it specifically. So I, I'm guessing probably this fall might be when we finally do it. Fall we'll would see. be a very nice time. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Summer's rough, but at the same time, it's it's fun. Yeah. But do the fall. Yeah. Do the spring or fall. Treat yourself. Yeah, that's kind of what I feel like would be. But what should we? How long did you live in New York? 11 years. Oh, wow. So you were there for it wasn't just like school times. You were there for the long haul. No, no. It was from 23 to 34. Wow. What neighborhood were you in? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Wherever you could find a place to rent. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Astoria to begin with, uh, like what they called East Williamsburg, but it was probably West Bushwick. And then uh, Greenpoint for a little, which was very nice. We, we lucked into that one. And then Ridgewood for the last chunk. Which was your favorite? Greenpoint, probably, at the time, just because it was, I could walk to everything. Like, being able to walk to so many concerts, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but I had, like, five venues that I wanted to go to that I would walk to and walk home. Oh, my God, that's awesome. It was was (laughs) the 
best. What was the best show you ever saw? Oh, that's uh, hard. Or like top five. Top five. Um, I saw Godspeed You Black Emperor in like an old, old, uh, not a cathedral, but a cathedral-esque church. Oh, cool. That's so cool. That was pretty wonderful. Some good festivals. It, it, that's hard to say. I'd have to think about that. Yeah. A uh, good Flaming Lips show with a little bit of mushrooms. Oh, my God. Just a great time in general. But at the worst venue, so I don't know if that's fair. <laughs> Terminal 5, the worst venue in New York City. <laughs> so when we go, what should we do as someone who actually lived there? Because like, I don't want to do touristy shit. I don't care about like Times Square. I don't, it means nothing to me. Times Square is uh, a fascinating thing to see at night just because it's lit up entirely by capitalism. Like It's kind of a neat <laughs> thing. We're just like... Oh, wow. Oh, it's burning my skin. It's so bright and toxic. <laughs> okay, that would be worth seeing. You're right. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> neat to do a transfer on the subway there, step out, and then go back. And just be like, oh, wow, it's a nightmare. Cool. <laughs> That's my kind of travel. Like, ah, this is a haunting experience that I will uh, dream about, not in a good way for the rest of my life. Great. There's so much you can do. I would just eat out for every meal that you possibly can. Go to some nice parks. The museums there are yeah. beyond measure. Museum of Modern Art, uh, Natural History Museum. Oh, yeah. Met. It's hard to quantify. Obviously, that's whenever we do travel somewhere, I drag Paul through museums. <laughs> Poor guy, because I'm so into art. I'm like nerdy about it. But he's, occasionally he enjoys it. Like the, the uh, what was it called? The New Mexico Museum of Art, I think. The one in Santa Fe. I mean, there are okay. quite a few museums in Santa Fe, but we went to that one and it was one of the best museums I've ever seen, but also really tiny. Like it had a really small exhibit, mm-hmm. um, but we saw all of it in like an hour and it was top notch. Like it was so cool the way they incorporated history and like local culture into every piece they displayed. It was just like, oh, that is cool. Perfectly captured Santa Fe. So great. That is the one nice thing about New York libraries is that they're, or libraries, uh, museums, they're giant enough that in 11 years there, I still never saw all of one. Yeah. Like, Hell yeah. I, I went multiple times. <laughs> They're free. Like, you can just walk in most of them. See, this, what I should do is go spend a week by myself in New York. Go do all the museums for a solid week, because that's all I want to do anyway. And then Paul comes and meets me. Mm-hmm. And then we go do stuff he wants to do. <laughs> that, that would be ideal. Yeah. <laughs> just enjoy it. But also the tourist stuff is kind of cool. Yeah. Seeing the top of a really big skyscraper, do Top of the Rock. That's a nice one. It's cheaper than Empire State Building. And you get to see the Empire State Building. Oh, that's even better. That's the way you do it. Yeah. Go to Central Park because it's glorious and nice and everyone will be there. See a play. It's it's, it's just a nice time. We did, um, we went to New Orleans on our our journey to Jackie's wedding. uh, And we spent a few days there. And they have a huge park there too. It's, I think it's a little bit bigger than Central Park, but it's like longer. So it's more strung out. It feels like it goes on forever. We spent like an entire day just doing nothing but walking around in that park and checking it out. It was really fun. Yeah. They had these beautiful oak trees that had like huge arms and like ferns growing all down their arms. It was like fern gully shit. It was great. Was Robin Williams in fern gully? Was he the bat? I don't remember. Probably seems like it. He was in everything when we were kids, right? He really was. He was a thing. What was your favorite like animated film when you were a kid? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I... I... 
I was at a peak age when Nightmare Before Christmas came out. I was five. I had like the watch from Burger King counting down to Christmas. I was a spooky little kid and it just hit me so right. And I loved it. Yeah, I'm not surprised to learn that you were a spooky little kid. That's <laughs> That seems yeah. right. <laughs> not that I'm really goth, but I, I definitely toe the line sometimes. I'm just not adventurous enough in wardrobe. or. Appearance. Yeah, exactly. I've, I am the same way. Like, I'm not externally goth, but I'm super goth on the inside. Like, skull paintings all over my walls, talking, writing <laughs> novels about death, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, doing the kind of writing and stuff I do, I'm like... Yeah, most of our fans are like super into heavy metal or really weird, uh, severe art films or are just very kind of goth. Like, uh, it makes sense. I worked in a haunted house for like nine years. Shut up, Reed. Tell me all about this. <laughs> so uh, my avenue into scaring is probably not the one most people have. I was in the Boy Scouts of America uh, through our Catholic church, of course. But we had an ancient Catholic church um, built in like the 19, I want to say like 20s maybe, that was just uh, decaying as they had left it and built another nicer one. So the Boy Scout troop just was allowed to turn it into a haunted house. And for some reason, it became the biggest haunted house in like the tri-state area. Um, because that sounds awesome. Hello. Yeah. It was very cool. <laughs> For some reason. Well, mostly to, uh, some reason because it was a bunch of little kids scaring them and a bunch of dads making all the stuff. But this was, I think, before it was really known to be like such a big moneymaker and a big trend. Like there were haunted houses, but I think they were just like local hay rides and stuff and corn mazes. This was year after year, one set location. They built it. They never had to tear it down. So just get built upon year after year oh, after year. Um, and I started working there. Is it still operating? It is. Um, the Catholic Church itself had it torn down. They passed some decree like in the 2010s and decided that old churches, if they are not used for a suitable purpose, have to be demolished. Boo. And it was like, yeah, it was either they got to keep doing it as that or they'd have to upkeep it as some relic or a historical landmark, but there was no money to do that. So they yeah. tore it down. The really beautiful old church that everyone loved going to and harmed nobody oh. except some kids that got friction burns on the slides <laughs> and stepped on a pocket knife in the ball pit. Nothing bad, probably. I don't actually know if these happened, except for the burns. You definitely could get burns on the slides. Oh, for if sure. You didn't do it right. So yeah, so tell me like, what was it like working there? I worked there from the age of nine till I was 16, 17. So maybe not nine years, eight, seven, eight years. And I kind of went up through the ranks when I was a little kid, still a wee below, as you call them in Boy Scouts. I, I like had to watch security on the ball pit with my mom. So I just sat on like a tripod chair up in a corner where no one could reach me. So I was like elevated and couldn't get down. And I did that for a year, just watching other people have fun in a haunted house. I don't know why that was suitable for me. But then the next year, I was a little bit older. And they're like, okay, okay. You've watched other people have fun for a year. Now you get to now you get to scare them a little bit. I was put behind like a, a steel grate in like a dark corner. And people passed by it. And me on the other side of the grate would take a like a electrode hooked up to a car battery and zing it across the grate and a bunch of sparks would fly out at everyone 
and people would inevitably be like, what if I was soaked in gasoline? You could have lit me on fire. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was 10, and I'd say, get away from me. I ain't pubescent yet, and I never will. And they'd go away. Oh, my God. That's amazing. It was a, that was a, that was the beginning of it being kind of fun. And that was in the haunted house, the, the haunted castle as it was called, the the old church. That place just had a, a strange feeling all its own because it was decades over 60 years old, decrepit church. And you would like leave the, the haunted areas and go up into the catwalks where you'd connect to all the different scare rooms. And you could see like all the like paintings up on the ceiling still that no one really got to see. And <gasps> it was a haunted house, so they... It felt scary being a 10-year-old walking around there alone trying to weave through the weird network of tunnels to get to your single spot. Oh my god, Reed. First of all, this is making my goth heart beat a little faster. Second, this is like the best origin story for you, like what you do now. <laughs> <laughs> for a weird, creepy writer. Yes, it's so perfect. Yeah, it really makes a lot of sense. <laughs> A healthy mix of Tim Burton films and from the age of 9 to 17, scaring people until they pee. <laughs> it helps. That was, I should say, among the scare trade, that was the height. The height of a scare. And you got a few a year at least. Oh my god. Especially when I was like 15 years old and I was allowed to like work the chainsaws oh. in the haunted forest. <laughs> or not the haunted, the black forest. I worked oh the, the chainsaws. They didn't have chains of on Of course, them. yeah. But you still have to have like a tank of gasoline and fill them up in between and rev it up and chase after people. And you'd get people like, oh, no, no, I, I kissed my pants. <laughs> and quietly be like, fuck you. <laughs> that was the height of scaring. How many did you get? I would say in my career, I had like 10. Oh, nice. Nice. It was hard to do. And I bet there were some that didn't confess. It was dark. You couldn't see. I mean, I definitely feel like you had to um, have made some people poop their pants a little bit at least once. I bet. Yeah. I bet. Um, the other height of scaring was uh, teen girls would go through and they would make, uh, for lack of a better term, human centipedes, oh. where they'd all just be holding onto each other's shoulders <laughs> yeah. and just like one by one slowly working their way through <laughs> the tunnels. And the best thing would be to scare the first one and like a stack of dominoes, they'd all fall backwards. <laughs> And it was a delight because you'd get like stacks of 10 because they'd all go because it was a fun thing to do. And it wasn't that scary. Oh, my God. We were all freaking 12 year olds were the people scaring you. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't be that big. They couldn't touch you. We weren't allowed to touch chase really yeah insurance uh prohibited us from doing anything too bad but of course oh that's so funny man what was like what was the craziest thing you ever witnessed at, at the haunted castle oh oh that's tough i did have one night where this was um later in my career i think i was 14 15 16 i'm gonna say 14 because it was right after 9 11 time period i was working in our third attraction it was called the pharaoh's revenge this was like at the height of the Mummy and Scorpion King franchise. Oh, yeah. And my dad was actually the person that kind of helmed that one. Like they built a giant pyramid, got this like weird Canadians, like spray paint artist, to, like come in and spray paint a bunch of like gooey, drippy mummies and grotesque corpses everywhere. <laughs> and me as a 14 year old is like, I'm going to hang around this Trevor for the next two weeks. <laughs> 
and just talk to him all the time. He plays guitar in a band. I want to be this man when I grow up. I kind of did. Um, <laughs> and I worked in the Pharaoh's Revenge in the entry room. It was this room where you came in and I would press a little button and the lights would go down and they'd flicker and there'd be a voiceover that'd be like, you have entered the Pharaoh's tomb. How dare you disturb his slumber? And they'd go through all of it. The whole thing would go through and be like, beware because they might come to get you. And at that point, I would be hooked up to a harness and a counterweight from like uh, 15 feet or so up in the air. And I was dressed in full mummy regalia with white face paint. And I'd jump out at them and go, ah, and slowly jump down to the ground and then jump back up and land back at the top. Oh, and that's so fucking rad. It was rad <laughs> until there was a night when, unbeknownst uh -oh. to me, the counterweight just fell off. So I jump and it catches me for like half a second and then I just plummet. Oh, no. And land. And <laughs> everyone's just standing there like, Wait, is the scary thing that the mummy looks like he hurt himself? Oh, no. Is that supposed to be Because <laughs> instead of scaring them, I just got the shit scared out of me. And it's just like, uh, 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 um, go on ahead, go on ahead. I was just like trying to rush them out and ran to one of the like adults that would walk security in the passageways between. I was just like, the harness fell off. Or not the harness, the weight or something went wrong. And... It just stopped working, and they were like, they eventually just found like, oh yeah, yeah, the 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 weight just it literally just came off the hook. We'll put it back on, and you can uh, go back out there, right? Oh, I don't think I went. I don't recall going back that night. Yikes! Oh, that is scary. Did did you hurt? Did you get hurt badly? Or no, I think I just like probably sprained my foot or something. Oh, it just hurt a little bit, <laughs> but that's terrifying. freaky. Oh my god! But rad up until that point for sure. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, worth that, it <laughs> it was just like a weird unending job we did it from like late september all the way through october and then you'd tear it down because you had to tear down all the outside stuff of the haunted of the uh haunted castle and then completely take down the black forest and completely take down the Mo the pharaoh's revenge you do that for like three months and then you'd sell christmas trees all through the winter and then start spring, you'd start building it all again. Wow. So it was unending. But that was how like our, our Boy Scout troop afforded all of our trips and stuff. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that is really, that's super cool. Wow. Wow, what a fun experience. Yeah, yeah no complaints. People, Some people have had some bad experiences with Boy Scouts, but I, I can't really complain too much about mine. That was, it was a good thing for a spooky little boy. That is a good thing for a spooky little boy. You found exactly the right Boy Scout troop. How perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been in an actual haunted house before? Like, have you ever had any weird experiences with ghosties and stuff? Not a single one. I really can't say a single one. And I say that knowing that, like, my mom in the, the old farmhouse she grew up in that I spent nights at, uh, I was told that my uncle's room was haunted. Like, like the twins slept in this room, and that's where we slept. And we were told that there was, like, an old woman that would appear sometimes. But I I never saw anything. I'm pretty ghost agnostic, I'll be honest. No, 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 I'll say ghost agnostic. I, I kinda doubt it. Well, I don't I don't think, you know, I don't think they're like dead people walking around. That just doesn't make sense to me. But I think something weird goes on. Sometimes. 
I mean, sometimes it just has a mundane explanation too, and people just <laughs> just are like, "It's a ghost." <laughs> it's actually the um, so for the podcast we do. Uh, I shouldn't say podcast. We're, I'm starting to not say that because it's very misleading. Our audio fiction series, the story must be told. One of my favorite recurring concepts is this idea I had for ghosts, which is just like, okay, what if we did figure out what it actually was? And the first story about it, it was just called Ghosts Are Hazy Life. And it just kind of turns into an exterminator solution, but not ghostbusters, like literally just like roach killing and stuff. Like you go to the hardware store, you get a kit, you go through the checklist, you have like a couple test strips. And most of the time it's just like, well, most of the time it's a cat. To be perfectly honest, in the stories, is like most of the time it's just cats because cats really could explain most spooky things you think are happening. Um, something keeps stealing my glasses. I found a pile of them in a room. Probably just a fucking cat. True. Cats are weird and they do weird shit. Or a bird. <laughs> Birds are weird and they do weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> most ghosts are a cat or a bird. That's true. Yeah. But then the other ones you could work through are like Civil War, like a uh, Civil War memory echo or uh, like psychic residue of a, a fight or something. But every so often there'd be like one where you had to like actually call a service or an exterminator to come in. It was just too complicated. They have to set like a glue trap. Pretty much. In this case, it was like this woman had to get a hold of her uncle, who was just this weird, tiny man. Uncle Gwuda, who talks like this. Uncle Gwuda. I don't know why it made him so annoying. <laughs> and he was an exterminator, and he took her around. They drive, like they triangulated where it was happening. And she'd wake up every night to this man screaming like, bam, bam, bam. And like going through her room screaming about red wine. And it turned out there were just enough retirement homes of aging millennials in like a certain distance. And they were all watching Emerald Lagasse, like cooking with Emerald at the same time every night. <laughs> that their just brainwaves came together in her house and just manifested the still alive. He's still alive, but the ghost of Emerald Lagasse in her home. Oh my god, I love that. And the concept is this life just wants to happen hard enough that ghosts are it just kind of misfiring every so often. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. Sure. I kind of like that, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I fully believe it, but yeah, psychic energy is enough that uh, yeah. maybe our brains can make magic come true. Nope, that's the secret. That's the secret. <laughs> well, maybe if you just think something hard enough that it, uh, it'll, it'll just happen if... No, no. <laughs> I love it. It's super fun. Do you have like a favorite piece you've written for The Story Must Be Told? Oh, that's very tough. Or like a couple, some of your favorites. Some of my favorites. I have a weird one that I don't even know if I entirely encourage people to listen to. So maybe I'll save it for a second. Um, I have my probably one of my best ones that I've ever written for him is called um, The First Photo of God. I remember that one. Okay. Oh, you've heard this one. I'm pretty sure because it or sounds maybe. really uh, familiar. Let me talk about it. Okay. Though. Yeah. Talk about it. Um, and this is one where, so we started off doing the podcast. We just kind of did it on our own. Uh, my friend Andrew and I had been writing exercises with each other. It was just like, he emailed me one day out of the blue. He's like, I've been writing a story a day. You should try it too. So we just started doing that. And after a while, we had enough of a backlog where it was like, we could just record these and put them out and see what happens. So we did a season of that. And an early version of this was one of them where it was kind of almost 
a short uh, Kurt Vonnegut kind of story where it's just like third person omniscient narrator just kind of laying out all the details of this thing where scientists want to take a photo of God. So they send someone there and they take a photo and I'll reveal what it is in a second. But it had no characters or anything. It had no emotional stakes. There wasn't much to it. It was just kind of a goofy short story with a funny idea. And the point of the story was just to get the idea out as quick as I could. So like three, four years later, after we've been doing this every week for four years, I was like, I still like this idea and I've been thinking about it more. So I completely reimagined it into kind of a weird like Christopher Nolan sci-fi epic almost where it is um, a government agency kidnaps a homeless person to train to send into basically the God realm that they discovered and take a photograph of God. This is during Trump years, and of course, uh, they decide, or they don't decide, but they find that trans people, for some reason, seem to be able to take like the injections to like acclimate their body to the god world better. So just uh, for some reason, I wrote a story about a, a government, a, a conservative government agency using trans people to further their uh, kind of evil religious aims. Hmm. For some reason, that just came out of me where uh, that was a concern for some reason. I fucking hate the world we live in. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it it just really resonated with me to talk about it in that way to the government's just use and uh, abuse of people to further their own aims. And it was about this uh, trans man like finding out about what the goal was, like didn't even know what it was getting brought into the service, uh, was a photographer before he became homeless and was on the street. So I kind of was well adapted for this. And eventually like, kind of takes ownership of it, goes to the God realm, finds God, and it is just like a dead giant worm that it was once alive, but it is no longer. And boy, I'm really probably not doing the sur- the story a great <laughs> service. But it just had such a big scope. It had some actual like social commentary that felt relevant at the time. And it really connected with a lot of people and, and probably one of my better thought out concepts. And I think part of it was because it was a half thought out concept for four years that I just kept dwelling on and dwelling on until I was like, oh, oh, fuck, I know what to do with this now. I know where to take this. I think you sent that one to me. I think you sent me the transcript. I for might it. have. Yeah, because yeah. I remember reading it specifically. And yeah, it's. I think it's a very powerful story. I think you did it justice in in oh, describing it. And yeah, it was a it was a good one. It's a good piece. That moment at the end where he kind of looks at this big stupid dead thing and is like, "God damn, it's <laughs> <That's> good." <laughs> It's really good. Are you willing to talk about your novel or do you want to keep that under wraps? I could talk about it a little bit. Yeah. I talked with the rest of the podcast team. They're like, if anyone happens to listen to it and gets some heads up on something, good for them. They, they did the legwork. Yeah, I uh, was uh, happy to, to beta read your novel for you, uh, Dead Bird Songs. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it's about because you're, you're currently you've got it out on sub right looking for an agent yeah that's the the current aim right now to get an agent and maybe take it to a publisher get it out there somehow yeah and this this book is fucking dope i love uh, it so much i no, it was really really good i uh it just it stuck with me it still is like it's been weeks since i finished reading it and it's still just like in my head like these characters are just living in my brain so um Give us a little bit of a rundown about what it's about. So this is um, a story about a corporation hunting a species of 
rare bird to extinction solely to turn them into tableware for consumer goods. And it comes from the point of view of uh, an intern who gets kind of brought on as the actuary to count and catalog all the dead birds. A young kid kind of brought on as one of the butcherers to do the slaughter and like take off the heads and remove the beaks that they turn into these cups. And one of the birds that actually like kind of lived in exile and then gets reunited with the flock just in time for their extinction. And it's about playing a small-scale part in a giant evil and how you kind of make sense of being complicit in in evil, basically. Like, I, I, I couldn't be yeah. much worse than making a species purposefully die for a consumer good yeah it's uh it's a powerful message and and yet you don't beat the reader over the head with it you're very nuanced about how you explore it and it's got a bunch of other stuff in there too like the way you build this world like the genre is hard to pin down it's maybe sci-fi like i don't maybe horror yeah i didn't do myself uh it's definitely got some sci-fi it's got a little bit of horror but not really nothing's really supposed to scare you no it's more like it's it's just a little bit more morbid and a little bit unsettling at points i felt like it would sort of fit in the category of religious horror though because it has these like undertones about what gods are in it or at least that's something that i took out of it oh definitely um that is horrifying like it's a it's a horrifying idea of the things we worship and why we worship them so Mm -hmm. um i I felt like it was horror adjacent but yeah it's hard to pin down genre wise but that's the best books are the best books most of the best books i've ever read um, are not really clearly defined in terms of genre or you know, their themes don't necessarily fit with what that genre typically does. Yeah. So no, I, I didn't do yeah. myself any uh, favors. I, I went in just like, I just want to write the book I want to write. I want to, at first it was just like, I want to write like a weird Cormac McCarthy novel about people going to hunt a species of bird to extinction. And it morphed into something a lot more emotional and easier to read, I think, than a typical Cormac McCarthy novel who I adore but boy can I not write like him that is I don't have the ancient vocabulary for that yeah yeah he's a or the black western heart (laughs) rotting inside (laughs) an elderly ribcage that's just seen too many horses die (laughs) I can't do it that's Cormac McCarthy yes (laughs) yeah Oh, it was great, though. I thought your prose was fantastic. Your character work was just, like, fucking brutally awesome. Like, so, so good. It's funny. In a lot of ways, the podcast, I started it concurrently with the podcast. Really? As we were writing the very first episodes, I was starting the beginnings of this novel. Wow. And most, not most, but a lot of my stories on the way up through the years were just me experimenting with something I wanted to try. Huh. It was like, okay, I keep working with this kind of idea. Okay, let, let me try something from another animal point of view. Let me see if I could do something better. Like I wrote a whole series uh, from, or not a series, but a two-parter from the perspective of living beetles, or not living beetles, obviously they're alive, but a giant human-sized beetles in a post-apocalyptic skyscraper. <laughs> And that did me some favors. It was like, okay, I, I have a better grasp of how to like tell a story without any words from a character. Like, How do you tell a story without doing any anthropomorphism, without having any like, 
where did he go? The cockroach asks. Like, no, I, I want it to be a fucking bird that's experiencing these things, feeling bird feelings, yeah. thinking bird thoughts about what it sees in a bird yeah. way. Yeah, I think you did that remarkably well. Um, I think yeah, you. and the whole like culture that the birds have as well, the way you showed that they have a culture that they're not just like these dumb birds like they have a complex society and they're doing their own fucking thing minding oh, yeah. their own business <laughs> yeah yeah millennia of yeah. of society that they've built up and traditions and it was a very very powerful book it's funny i thank you so much for saying that yeah i i hope it finds a home somewhere one day but if not i'm gonna fucking do something with it yeah the whole point of us putting things out was i i was tired of waiting for permission to do things yeah yes Fuck yeah. We wrote so many like short film scripts, so many spec scripts for TV, so many pilot. Like, um, this started out as a stand-up comedian with my friend Andrew, and we were just submitting all this dumb bullshit to try to get joke writing things on late night shows that we didn't watch, that we didn't like the jokes of most of the time. Writing jokes, and I honestly didn't, even as a stand-up, I didn't like writing jokes. I wanted to take you on a weird journey if I could. If it was a one-liner, I was kind of disappointed in myself. And at the end of the day, it was like, why did we spend so much time trying to make something that someone might produce for us? So we just started putting it out ourselves, and that was so much more rewarding. No kidding, it was so much more rewarding, because I know you're too humble to brag on yourself, but you guys, listeners, this motherfucker has performed his storytelling show live at Ryman Auditorium. It doesn't get any realer than that. Like, this dude needs nobody's... Yeah, no shit. This dude needs no one's permission. Not by ourselves. It wasn't the story must be told headlining. We we, we opened it up, but it was where Johnny Cash performed at the Grand Ole Opry, and we were... And we were there? That still counts. That... uh... Oh, no, no, no. On all of our credits, it's, and we performed at the Ryman Auditorium. Of course, yes. Because we, we did for fucking like 2,000 people. It was very cool. It was a big highlight. You opened for one of the biggest podcasts in the world. You fucking rocked it on the stage at Ryman Auditorium. That yeah. is so goddamn baller because this is what happens when you don't wait for permission to do stuff, when you go out and build it yourself. Yeah. You just got to be content building it for a long time and liking whatever the result is because... At first, we got like 60 listens for an episode and some of our first episodes we put out. And it was just stunning to us. Like, there are people who showed up. Some people listened. That's amazing. I know. I've got like 27 subscribers at the point when we're recording this. And I'm like, there are 27 people who want to listen to my dumb horseshit. Like, that's fucking awesome. I <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my cat's in the- I didn't realize he was in my office. He's very noisy. Chupi. Oh, you're fine. What is your cat's name? His name is Chupacabra. He's, um, come here. Chupacabra. See if I can get him to talk into the mic. He's very talkative. He's a very pretty boy. I'm trying to get my cat over here, too. He's kind of an asshole. There he is. Hello. Oh, say something. He won't. Okay. (laughs) You coward. He never talks when I want him to, but when I don't want him to, he screams at a thousand decibels. So... (laughs) It's the loudest cat I've ever been around in my life. When we got him neutered, the vet was like, okay, he's going to stay in the hospital for like three hours to recover and then we'll send him home. She called me to tell him the surgery was done and and everything went great. He's in recovery Mm -hmm. now. She called me half an hour later. She was like, can you come get him? Because like, he's really loud and he won't stop. (laughs) I'm like, yes, (laughs) I will come get him. (laughs) 
Yeah. Very, very loud.
2039 will be a crowded world, the population twice what it is now, and it will be divided. The rich enjoying the advances of science, the poor struggling to survive. Because people are so tightly put together, uh, so tightly welded electronically, the places that flourish in the 21st century will look like Japan. The places that don't flourish will look like Beirut. It's all neighborhoods, neighborhoods and essentially drug gangs, narco-terrorists, groups who are crossed, they're just a boiling mess of religion and ethnic hatred and uh, black market profit and political manipulation. And no one dares to go in. So, crash test dummies. I didn't know it at the time, but back when we saw them that day in 2001 at an impromptu show at the Ballard Firehouse, the band was going through a rough patch creatively. They'd found a lot of commercial success and were living the dream by then. Big label, big tours, big record sales, the whole nine yards. But they were also feeling really constrained and over-controlled by their label, too. They'd been working on their next album, Give Yourself a Hand, and their label rejected 35 different songs they'd proposed for the album. I mean, obviously the album wasn't going to have 35 songs on it, they just kept proposing pieces and the label kept turning them down, and the need to bend to the commercial expectations of a record label was cramping their style, frankly. When Give Yourself a Hand came out, it didn't do nearly as well as their previous records had done, which was no surprise because BMG had insisted on micromanaging the process from start to finish instead of allowing the artists to make art. But it eventually kind of fragmented the band and sent all its members off on paths of exploring their own solo projects. Until this year, 2023, when they put out a new album called Sacred Alphabet, which was their first record as a complete band since, like, the early 2010s. So that show we caught, was it a little creative rebellion? Did we witness crash test dummies fighting back against the corporate overlords that were trying to prune and dictate their artistic vision into something BMG thought it could wring the maximum amount of profits from? I wonder. It's interesting to me to think that my friends and I might have seen something more than just a spontaneous concert that day. Maybe we saw some real creative fire on display. Maybe we saw a group of artists rejecting the imperative that they must ask permission to make the art they wanted to make. And I can't think of a better place to do that than in Seattle. Oh, to be able to gaze into a crystal ball and know what tomorrow will be like. Where will we work? What will we do? What will the cities look like? Industries have been built around answering such questions. Future forecasting is serious business these days. But for some people, future forecasting is also a lot of imaginative fun. I'm getting to the wrap-up stage with the Vigilance, loving where it is now and where it's going. I'll be sending it off to my agent during the break between season two and season three of this podcast. Probably go out on sub to publishers, like, while I'm making season three, I think. After the Vigilance is finished, I've got my work cut out for me for the rest of the year. The Roswell book for Lake Union is going to be due by mid-October, so I'll have to jump on that right away. And then I need to finish the Van Gogh book and get that edited and recorded since I'm actually going to be releasing it, not as a printed book, but as a podcast novel. But once the Van Gogh book is finished and out there, it'll be time to start my next project. I'm a little anxious about that because I know what my next project should be. 
In fact, I know exactly what it is going to be, but it's not something I typically do. See, one of the ways I know the book I'm currently working on is truly almost done is that I feel the next book pop into my head, like a fully formed idea that's ready to be written. It like steps up to the front of the line, like, hello, I'm here, time to go. And this project, this next one, very decidedly came into my head just as I reached that moment with the vigilance where I knew I had everything figured out that needed to be figured out. And all that was left was to just get the words down. So the next project is in the hopper and it's not going anywhere. Like I know my process well enough to know that it will remain on deck, haunting me and tormenting me until I've finished it. But as I've come to the realization that this is going to be my next project, I've been feeling a lot of, I don't know, like not anxiety about it really, more like doubt because it's something that's way outside of my wheelhouse. I'm going to write a kind of memoir, essay, creative nonfiction thing. And it's a leap for me because I don't really have the pedigree as a writer that would make that a sensible next move for me at this stage of my career. I mean, who am I? You know, who, care, who cares what I have to say about anything in a nonfiction contest? I don't have a huge platform. I have no expertise in anything. I'm unrefined. I'm an outsider. I'm still exactly what I've always been, a garage band whose members wear thrifted clothes and let their hair get long and greasy. It's not sensible for someone like me, someone with no platform and no name recognition to move into memoir. It's maybe a little ridiculous. And what makes it even more nonsensical and ridiculous is the fact that I'm not just going to write a book in this vein. I'm going to turn it into a long-running multimedia storytelling project that will incorporate written word with film, music, visual art. I'm going to get very 21st century with it, do all the things. And to be perfectly honest, it might not be the kind of thing any publisher will touch. I mean, the book aspect of this project. That part might fail. But to be honest, I don't think I'm ever going to connect with a wider audience the way I want to, the way I've always aimed to do, unless I do something radically different. I need to invent my own architecture, my own aesthetic, and do it boldly and deliberately, the way Seattle is transforming itself and building itself into an entity that acknowledges and embraces this new era. And I won't make that happen by waiting for anyone's permission. So I'm just gonna do it. Its traditions and its faiths preserved, there is new beauty and new strength in the city of tomorrow. Technology can point the way to a future of limitless promise, but man must chart his own course into tomorrow, a course that frees the mind and the spirit as it improves the well-being of mankind. Over the next 12 months or so, I'll be traveling from Victoria to Seattle fairly often so I can work on this essay project thing. In terms of writing, my priority will be the Roswell book and then finishing the Van Gogh novel and getting my ducks in a row to release that as a podcast audiobook, which hopefully today's guest, Reed Failer, will be narrating for me, providing the timing works out with his schedule. And by the time those two projects are finished, I should have enough notes and enough other material to get started on that mixed media essay project. I have no idea yet when it will be released or whether there will be a publisher involved with the text component. I'm just tossing this idea into the wind and seeing where it flies off to. Just letting it be what it wants to be without any regard for what any corporate entity thinks. Go fuck yourself, BMG.
And despite my anxieties about how it'll be received and whether it'll connect with any audience at all, let alone the kind of audience I've been trying for years to build, it feels really freeing and energizing to just be making art for the sake of the act itself, for the sake of creation. The essay project is titled Selfie on the Edge of Forever, and when it's ready to be seen and read and listened to by an audience, I will of course let all of you know. And I'm really glad that all of you are along for this ride with me. This is such a fun, supportive, creative community of weird people who found their way to my strange little podcast. And I'm really grateful for every one of you and glad to be sharing my experiences with you. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. This is the end of season two. I wanted it to be longer. I was hoping it would be 10 episodes like season one, but all my health issues earlier in the year just did not make that a possibility. But I'll be back in August with a new season and hopefully some news about how the Vigilance is doing as it heads out into the world to find its place. I hope you all have a beautiful summer full of adventure and love and good health. I hope you make lots and lots of things. And I hope if your friend pulls up in a sketchy van and invites you to come see an unannounced show, you will drop whatever you're doing and go. Because you never know what acts of creative rebellion and artistic rebirth you might witness in the process. That's it for this week and for season two. Thanks for tuning in. My guest was Reed Failer. You can check out his work on his own podcast, The Story Must Be Told, and also check out his visual art and other projects at reedfailer.com. That's R-E-I-D-F-A-Y-L-O-R.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, please take a minute to rate and review since that will drive the algorithm right to my bar in its creepy white van where I will find more curious weirdos like you. Sound collage components came from the following YouTube channels. Picks and Portraits, Expatriate, Epic Orchestra, and Stempunked. Featured music was Lithium, written by Kurt Cobain and covered by Polyphonic Spree. Additional music included Smells Like Teen Spirit, written by Kurt Cobain and covered by Epic Orchestra. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until season three, do good magic and make good worlds. Thank you.